You're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. There are a handful of knee injuries that are seen commonly in the adolescent age group. Patellar dislocations and subluxations rank high on that list. However, it's an injury that is sometimes misunderstood, and there's been a tendency in the past to be conservative, at least to start with non-operative management. But is that really the best choice, or are the tides shifting? Today on the podcast, I have a sports surgeon to discuss the wonderful world of patellar instability. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Jacqueline Brady. Dr. Brady specializes in the care of patients with sports injuries, and especially involving the knee and shoulder. She has a particular interest in patients with joint instability, including patellar dislocations, shoulder dislocations, and multi-ligament knee dislocations. She completed the ISAKOS Patellofemoral Traveling Fellowship in 2016 to gain a global perspective on treating patellofemoral problems. A former collegiate athlete, Dr. Brady enjoys participating in and providing medical care for local sporting events. She has volunteered as a physician at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and served as a medical volunteer at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. Dr. Brady is a team physician for Portland State University. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Brady. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. When I go to national conferences, I really am there to learn, catch up with colleagues, but I also am using it kind of little secretly behind the scenes to find potential podcast guests. And so when I was at AMSSM this past May, I really appreciated your talk that you gave on patellar instability. You made my short list of must-haves I need to have on the podcast, so I'm happy to have you here. So I think it's a good place just to kind of start talking a little bit about what piqued your interest in patellar instability, because I know this is an area, especially for surgeons, that's like some people just like gravitate away and they like, I have don't want have anything to do with the patellofemoral joint and other people seem to have an interest in it. <laughs> that is fair. I think what piqued my interest in the first place was that it was that black box of discomfort when I was in residency training. I'd kind of settled on sports. I felt like there was a really robust evidence basis for things like shoulder instability and ACL tears. But patellar instability remained this question mark for me. I felt like I would run into patients who had languished for years or decades with recurrent instability and and really felt like maybe we could have done something sooner. But then what was that something? And so as I went into fellowship, we had an amazing ability to sort of pick our pathway and, and request different preferences. So I asked to work first with the people who specialize in patellar instability And that was one of the best decisions I've made career-wise because I stumbled upon a fantastic mentor and current research collaborator as my first rotation faculty member. That's Dr. Beth Schubenstein, who I think also has given the AMSSM talk in years past. And then we embarked on a number of studies since then to better understand this problem. And and I was learning from her existing expertise. I feel like I put it together a lot better. Why don't we just get into the nitty-gritty of patellar instability? I know there have been some risk factors identified that may predispose someone to patellar instability. Can you talk to us a little bit about those? Yes. The elephant in the room, the most predictive factor is trochlear dysplasia, the shape of the groove on the front of the femur as it accepts the patella during flexion. That's often the one that we sort of dance around with our interventions to try to line the patella up with whatever groove is there. But sometimes we address it directly if the anatomy is really severe. But other things are sort of alignment questions. So the high riding kneecap or so-called patella alta or the coronal malalignment of either just knee valgus, that knock knee orientation, or the extensor mechanism turning too much of a corner around the knee to get to its insertion 
We currently measure that with this tibial tubercle to trochlear groove distance, or TTTG. We could get in the weeds with that pretty quickly, but I'll kind of leave that one there. And then there are other factors like ligamentous laxity that are a little bit harder to quantify, but we know that those play a role because we see this so often in patients with collagen tissue abnormalities and things like that. Obviously, we talk about some of those things. Most of those are anatomic. When we talk a little bit about ACLs, there's been a lot of effort put into modifiable risk factors, things that can hopefully reduce our risk of ACL injuries. Is there anything that's out there that are things that we can think about as far as trying to reduce the likelihood of patellar instability? Or are we just really talking this is all just how you're put together kind of thing? This is a great question. I think one sort of loosely modifiable risk factor is age. <laughs> so as we accumulate birthdays, we get a little tighter, but we can't really rely on that as a strict plan. Like this non-operative treatment has really doomed some people to recurrence, seeing as we can't accelerate the timeline. You're referring a lot to the sort of injury prevention, like FIFA protocols and, mm-hmm. and jumping and landing mechanics. And we think that those matter. We haven't generated an evidence basis for that, I think, because some patients have such alignment problems that they don't become athletes. And so we don't have the N that the FIFA protocol studies have in athletes with this problem. But we suspect that it's true. Like if you have patella alta and a trochlea that's dysplastic, do you dislocate your kneecap instead of tearing your ACL when you land in valgus and internal rotation? And so we love that athletes are doing these protocols because we suspect that they probably help keep the knee under the hip and put you at less risk. We just haven't proven it. And things like, you know, you can't modify your family history, you can't modify your personal history, things like that. You were part of a research study, and I'll make sure that we have a link to that in our show notes, that was discussing a multivariable model for patellar instability risk factors. What, what did you find in this study? So we did a multivariable model based on previous individual studies to try to really determine a robust statistical model for risk of recurrence after first-time dislocation. And we found that young age or open growth plates a personal history of dislocation in the other knee, lateral patellar tilt on imaging, that TTTG distance that indicates extensor malalignment across the knee, patella alta, and trochlear dysplasia were all risk factors for recurrence. You know, when you were talking at AMSSM, you used this phrase that I, I like, the, and I'd love you to elaborate on this for our listeners, is that pain is not the same as instability. And I think that's an important kind of distinction there. So kind of elaborate on that for us. Yes, this is common in pediatric sports across the board, I would wager. And this is probably very familiar to you as, as the host and a pediatric sports medicine doc. In the world of the patellofemoral joint, pain and instability often overlap, but they're very different problems. We know that the risk of cartilage injury is high with patellar instability, so I always recommend an MRI to look for that. But in the absence of a big cartilage injury as the reason for the pain, patients who have prolonged pain following an instability episode are often under-rehabilitated. And the frustrating thing is that those are the patients that will always say they failed PT or multiple mm-hmm. rounds of PT. They've, they've always had sort of a story of PT that they are a little skeptical. I have a PT in my clinic, Sarah Manning, who I deeply respect for her ability to find and demonstrate to the patient as a key the underperformance of quad in the activities that they're seeking to do. So a lot of these patients really need to see it themselves to be convinced that it's still an issue. And you don't want to tell them they're weak. They're athletes. You know, a lot of the times you don't want to tell an athlete they're weak. That's just demoralizing. But as athletes, like somebody tells you to do a squat, you will do a squat. You'll find a way. You'll recruit whatever muscles you have to recruit. And sometimes you'll your body and your brain will just work all the way around the quad if the quad has decided that something's wrong and it doesn't want to participate. This takes 
a lot of skill and patience to undo. And some of these patients are, are really easily discouraged in the process. And likewise, not every PT is into this, just like not every orthopedic surgeon wants to approach patellar instability. Some PTs are not as interested in this problem or, or maybe not as skilled at sussing out the, the quad underperformance. So I call Sarah in my clinic the quad whisperer <laughs> because she'll <laughs> always find it. But sometimes it takes something like doing an isokinetic test, giving them an objective number to compare side to side or sort of to age match norms and give them a number to chase, like give them anything that gives them a little light at the end of the tunnel. But we can't give up on the rehab component if pain is the main complaint. Surgery won't help that. I will only make them atrophy more and make them climb up a bigger hill in terms of strength. And I've always found that to be a little bit of a challenging thing to avoid using that that W word, the weak, in the office. I've tried to change it around and say you're just your strength isn't where it needs to be yet, or your muscles just aren't firing as much as they should be yet. One of the things I actually just had a patient yesterday who was a follow-up for patellar dislocation and had been to rehab and already been progressed back to activity, even though we hadn't given the clearance to yet, wasn't having any pain. But you know, what I usually have them do is I'll just have them I'll I'll just have them fire their quad for me and just kind of see what they do and just while they're like down and a way that I've kind of uh, kind of driven this home to patients a little bit is just I'll notice that clearly their injured side quad isn't firing like it's supposed to. It's just they're not making that tense muscle. So I'll just have them sit up and I just have them here. All right, I want you to sit up. I want you to put your hands on your thigh and I want you to make a muscle here on both sides and tell me what's different. And usually they catch on really quick right there that, hey, this one just like this one's rock hard over here. And this one here is kind of this mushy little thing that's just not really doing anything. And sometimes I found that that drives it home for them a little bit more that really this is where we got to get it to be. And that's kind of just a little tool I've used with this just to show them the quad thing, because early on in patellar dislocations, I mean, everybody is like that. Right. And it's just where they get their rehab afterwards if they get that back to normal. So, yeah, but I've always struggled a little bit of trying to avoid that, that it's weaker on that side or whatever, Mm -hmm. because, yeah, it's that, that. That negative term gets to be kind of a challenge sometimes, especially when right. you are talking with those athletes. Yeah, it's, it's words like recruitment or imbalance or ratios. Mm-hmm. Like give them something that's a little more mathematical, a little bit more objective. Sure. And like the hold a straight leg raise, like yeah. do a straight leg raise. Sure, a lot of them can do that, but hold it, you know, yeah. like hold it up and see how quickly it shakes, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. great tools. We'll be right back after this quick break. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising could have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, (laughs) you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. 
use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. And now back to the podcast. Well, let's kind of go through a scenario here. Say we got a 15-year-old female that just came into your office, had a first-time patellar dislocation. I'd like to just walk through that process. Let's just start with history, because I think that's always an important part here. Like, what do you really want to get out of a patient when they come into your office for history with potential patellar dislocation? Like, say they say, I think my knee popped out. And that can obviously mean a whole bunch of different things when someone comes in with that phrase. Right. Absolutely. Well, at 15, we know she's at risk for recurrence just based on age, especially if I detect trochlear dysplasia on her imaging. So I'm sort of bracing myself for a conversation that includes surgery as an option, but may or may not push us in that direction, depending on where we land. First, though, I want to know how long ago did she dislocate and what happened right afterward? Because I think a lot of ER docs are still subscribing to the put them in extension, keep them there until they see the orthopedist or until some sort of indefinite time point. We know that that's detrimental. We know that that accelerates the quad atrophy and leaves the patella in a position where it can just lean laterally, right? The more you bend your knee, the more it's engaged in its bony trochlea. And so as long as they're not buckling and falling down, better to get them moving and better to hand them a pair of crutches if you can. I I don't think the immobilizer at time zero is a bad idea just because quad is so inhibited and buckling and falling is such a risk. But I don't want to see them in that for weeks. I don't want to see them starting to atrophy in that position. The other thing is, have we had any locking or catching, assuming she has gotten some motion back, to indicate that there's a loose piece of bone or cartilage floating around from this injury, because we know the risk of cartilage injury is high. And one of the very well-accepted universal reasons to do surgery is to address a loose piece of cartilage and or osteochondral piece. And then what's her perspective on this? Is What's her other knee doing? Any history there? any apprehension there? Like, is this is this a sort of de novo thing that's just out of the blue? Did she walk in with a mom who has scars on her knee and a knowing look on her face? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Sort of put it all in perspective. And then obviously, we want to go and step to our physical exam, but in an audio only format that makes it a little bit more challenging, especially when we don't have slides that we can show videos or what have you. But I, I think most of our listeners are savvy as far as physical exam and physical exam terms, but just kind of what's your approach to the physical exam wise with a patient? I start them standing. I want to know how they walk, whether the quad is participating normally in gait mechanics. There's a really typical quad avoidant gait where you can see them subtly pulling with their hamstrings and not pushing with their quad. I look at the, just a, a static stand. Are they miserably malaligned? Do they have sort of normal alignment or are they knock kneed? Is that valgus alignment a problem? Do they in-toe with their gait? Is it a rotational alignment problem? That's a little bit of a a harder one to pin down with our routine imaging. And so that's a, a very physical exam level of suspicion factor. And then once we're seated, I ask them to extend their knee. People with really severe alignment problems do not want to do an open chain knee extension because they'll get this like big J sign. Sometimes it's subtler. Sometimes they can't do an extension because their quad is just not firing normally. And so that tells me a lot as well. And then I'll just put a hand over that knee as they move it to see if there's crepitus indicative of a cartilage injury and friction under there. And then I have them go supine for exam and there I'll check just a quick and dirty hip rotation. So you can do that in a supine position. I think the pediatric orthopedic purists would prefer it prone. And so if the supine exam raises my eyebrows, I'll also flip them over and do a prone exam, i.e. hip and extension versus hip inflection. And then you can look for patellar tilt. 
tilt. So can you get a thumb under that lateral pull of the patella? Do they jump off the table when you move to touch their patella? What's their apprehension like? How much does that translate medially and laterally? And do you feel a good endpoint to translation? And then what would you do? I mean, going through the steps here, what would you do for imaging next? Obviously, usually x-ray is going to be our default, of course. Yes. Generally, I mean, it's orthopedic clinic, right? So nobody walks yeah. in with an, an, <laughs> an x-ray. And if I could pick one x-ray, if you gave me one choice of an x-ray to pick, it would be a perfect lateral of the knee. That gives me an idea of the dysplasia, which is the you know the strongest predictor. So is that a convex groove that should be a groove? Is it a big bump at the top that's going to send that patella into the lateral gutter instead of down the middle of the trochlea. What's the patellar height? I can tell all these things from the lateral x-ray and they're super helpful to know. And then if you're going to pick another one, the merchant view is very helpful. So that's an axial view in early flexion, about 30 degrees, 30, 45. If you go deeper into a sunrise position, which is more of a 60 degree view, that'll pad your stats and you'll lose some of the clues for patellar instability because you'll have a groove somewhere, right? Everybody's got a notch. They've got an ACL, PCL. And so the deeper your flexion, the more that patella gets engaged, the less tilt, the less subluxation you have. So I'd go merchant early flexion to get a, a clue on that patellar tilt. And then we generally will just get an AP tunnel view as sort of a standard, like what else is going on in the joint kind of clue. And if there's a loose body, sometimes you catch it on those views as well. Yeah. And I think that's probably my biggest challenge. And I think it's it's one of my never ending endeavors is to stop getting the oblique views from the ERs and urgent cares and, <sighs> yes. and get that patellofemoral joint view. I think early on, at least most of us have the advantage that with a patient that they can't flex very much anyway. So you kind of get the default merchant, even if you're yes. <laughs> default to the sunrise. So at least it helps. But I, I totally appreciated that discussion you had as far as the merchants versus sunrise. I think it really truly makes a big difference. And you really can see a lot more that helps you on that merchant's view rather than the sunrise. And I think some people just don't understand that distinction between the two. So Right. Even radiology techs I've learned, like in my early practice, everybody was kind of defaulting to sunrise. And so I had to give them some education. And the, to give the listeners context at the AMSSM talk, I showed two pictures of the same patient with the merchant and the sunrise because I had the radiology text repeat it. And you could see on the merchant, the patella, both sides are just making a run for it yeah. where yeah. they were very centered on the sunrise. So we've got our x-ray and what makes you decide on MRI? It, it does every single patient that comes into your office who has a patellar instability episode, regardless whether you're thinking dislocation or not, get an MRI or what makes you decide to do the advanced imaging? If I'm convinced that the patella had an instability episode... MRI is indicated in my mind because the risk of cartilage injury is 70% and up, even in the first timer. And I don't know that that's different in dislocation versus subluxation. I have a nerdy little research interest in this, and this is not an evidence-based little piece of, of sort of thought process here yet. But even on the table under anesthesia, I find that I can dislocate some patellae before I do surgery to stabilize them. And some of them I cannot. I could maybe subluxate them, but they won't stay out. And so I really think that the difference between subluxation and dislocation, just like in shoulder instability, structurally matters very little. I think it has a lot to do with how the patient's built and all these, these anatomical factors, but I don't think that that should affect our algorithm for how we get imaging, how we decide on MRI, how we decide on surgery. If that patella is unstable, that patella is unstable, whether or not it stays out. There are some cases where 
A patient has sort of nebulous injuries. They have maybe some buckling. I've had a couple of patients who are just sort of running and they fall and their parents are like, what was that? And they're young and can't quite articulate it and don't really know what's happening. And then you really have to put the clues together. I still think maybe an MRI is warranted there because you could get a clue like a bone bruise pattern that indicates that, yes, that was a true instability event. But it really depends on how severe that was for the patient because sometimes it is a quad dysfunction thing. And so you have to have a level of suspicion there. Does an effusion or the presence of an effusion matter for you with the hemarthrosis? You know, we get some of these kids that come in and they have, you know, they're just, they sit so high and they just, they're constantly, you know, just, they just pop out. You can see them in the office where they got that super high J sign and, and they don't have an effusion. And does that, would that change you as far as whether you decide to get, you know, because I, I would expect most likely if you have an articular cartilage fracture, some chondral defect, something along those lines, that it's going to produce an effusion in the acute setting. Does that, would that sway you at all as far as where you get one? Yes. I think if there's an effusion, that's an especially compelling reason to get an MRI. There is loose evidence basis that the more laxity you have, again, the, the laxity piece is just hard to quantify. Our beaten criteria are just so arbitrary. But there's some loose evidence basis that the more laxity you have, the less likely you are to injure cartilage in an instability event. And so it's sort of oddly protective. But then again, it's easier to dislocate in the first place or subluxate because you're looser. So an effusion to me indicates more trauma to the joint and definitely would be a compelling reason to look. I know if I stuck a whole bunch of sports surgeons in a room and I asked them what's their treatment protocol for surgical defaulting, where, where are you going to go on that surgical path or who are you going to recommend? We will get answers all over the board. Um, so <laughs> taking that into account, what's your treatment algorithm as far as when you make recommendations for surgical management? It's definitely one of these problems where you could ask five different people and get 10 different answers and get a little frustrated with things. And I, I think that's the problem with the patellofemoral world currently anyway. It's, it's such an individualized algorithm, both for the surgeon and the patient right now, because we don't have enough evidence basis to say who should get what. But I think we're increasingly realizing that there's a group of patients that is high risk. So the young, the dysplastic patient, and then in addition to that, these sort of anatomical factors are additive. So there are some biomechanical studies that have tried to see like, you know, if you move the tubercle up and sort of simulate patella alta, or if you move it over and simulate a high TTTG, what happens to the isometry of your reconstructed ligament? And yes, that's informative for technique for surgery, but it also shows us that these are not in isolation. So if you have a, a high TTTG and patella alta, it's even worse. And then if you add dysplasia, it's even worse. And then if you add some laxity, it's got to be even worse, even though it's harder to sort of simulate that. If a patient is known to be high risk statistically, i.e. like a young patient with dysplasia walks into my clinic, I know their risk for recurrence, even after their first time dislocation, is somewhere around 70%, then we're going to talk surgery. But it's not 100%, so I'm not going to force surgery. But if they're recurrent, especially if they're lax and they have these anatomical factors, I would consider the writing to be on the wall. And most would consider those to be surgical candidates. And that's where the holy grail is, who should get what and when. Like, what do we do about the the sort of bony realignment piece? I think we're getting closer. We're doing these multi-center studies. I started in fellowship with this prospective study with Dr. Schubenstein on her patients with patellar instability, recurrent, so surgical candidates, do MPFL reconstruction alone, stop and see who fails. 
regardless of sort of measurements with a couple of exceptions, right? Unloadable full thickness cartilage lesion. We didn't feel like we had the equipoise to, to leave those alone or like that jumping JSON where they just frankly subluxate in full extension. But everybody else, we weren't looking at the numbers and we were asking them if they'd like to be part of the study where we would do ligament reconstruction, no bony realignment. And the problem with that is that the risk is very low of failure of that, which is good. That's a good sign. And so with a 5% risk of failure, we couldn't really draw any big conclusions on like, okay, well, who's failing? So now we're doing that on a multi-center basis with this Jupiter multi-center study, and hopefully we'll see the answers come through. But that's more for the surgeons. I think the message for the, the sports medicine primary care docs is please start these discussions early because we're going to keep having them if these are high-risk patients for recurrence. We're going to change this scenario a little bit. Now we're just thinking about treatment and we're going to, it's going to say we're acutely assessing this person on the field or on a court who just acutely had a dislocation. You're the team physician there or say one of our listeners, you're the athletic trainer there. And what is your preferred method as far as reducing a dislocated patella? The main key is to get the knee extended. And I think in any joint, instability situation in the acute setting on the sidelines, it's overcoming the muscle spasm. Because the thing that's keeping them out most often is the spasm of the surrounding muscle. And a lot of that is mind over matter, especially in the the sort of higher level athlete population. If you tell them, hey, if we can get your muscles relaxed, this thing will go in. A lot of them will sort of go to their happy place and find a way to do it. And it's just amazing to watch. But the key first is to get that knee extended and to, you know, control the situation, right? Like get the, the athlete focused on you, get them out of the sort of like sort of shock moment of like something's terribly wrong, get them focused with you. If you can get their mental buy-in and get those muscles to relax, just a little gentle pressure on the lateral side of that patella, usually it'll just pop right back in because it wants to go home. It's got a home mm-hmm. to go to. And if you can get the muscles to stop stopping it, then generally it'll be pretty easy. Yeah. I think these are one of those that we do tend to find reduce on their own very frequently just because the yeah. natural reaction is, is when you, <laughs> right. you try and straighten your leg out when you grab it and, and then yes. it, it fortunately goes back in on its own. But yeah, that's those ones that don't. It's I think that big key is just with any reduction, especially if you're doing in the acute setting in the field rather than in an uh, ER setting where you can, you know, give them some anesthesia or you can do a right. nerve, or do a, a block to the joint or something like that, where you can give them a little pain relief that it's just, just grid and bear it for just a second and you'll be right. feeling a whole lot better in just a little bit. So. Right. Yeah. I suppose if you just are really stuck, then just saline should help you float it in. And if you can add some, some local anesthetic to that, then that's the kinder, gentler thing. But I was actually just having this conversation with a physical therapist in my practice who did some volunteer work for um, one of the NGBs in the Olympics, the badminton, I think. Mm-hmm. And one of the athletes dislocated a patella And she was a little bit stuck on, is it safe for me to try to manipulate this back into place? And I was reassuring her that I know of no cases where an attempt at closed reduction, manual closed reduction has induced harm. And so I was encouraging her to be brave about that. And I think think if you give it a nudge and the muscles will will relax, it will go. I think it's kind of the same uh, almost advice that we give for for parents that uh, for kids that have the recurrent nursemaid's elbow is just teach them how to do it because it's it's unlikely that you're going to cause any damage with that. Well, you made a statement towards the end of your talk about treating a high-level athlete where less is more is better. And I think this is how I wrote it down as my notes to myself. So I want to make sure that I wrote this correctly. And so correct me if I'm wrong. And with the Ehlers-Danlos patient, you're saying more is more instead. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? And if I got that right. Absolutely. In the high-level athlete, we trust their soft tissues and we trust their mechanics as sort of a structural setup for the patella to be stable. And so I find myself leaning away from bony realignment 
as kind of a rule in my high-level athletes, unless there's some compelling reason to unload some cartilage injury or something like that. In the Ehlers-Danlos patient or the, the severely ligamentously lax patient, I don't trust those soft tissues at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing everything that I can to make an excuse to realign bones and sort of line things up so the kneecap has an excuse to go straight down the center. I've learned that this since early practice. I'm, I'm coming up on nine years in practice now. And really with the Ehlers-Danlos patient in particular as an example of like extreme laxity, don't trust the soft tissues. We can't just give them a stronger version of their MPFL and stop because something is setting this up and we've got to resolve that problem. And we end our podcast with what we call the pearl of the podcast. It's your opportunity to provide a take-home point or points. And we sometimes refer to those as string of pearls because sometimes just people have a whole bunch of pearls and that's great. <laughs> what's your what's your pearl of the podcast? Oh, for patellofemoral, it's the quad. Just think about the quad as your first treatment point. So in the acute setting, don't immobilize them. Don't let that quad deflate. Don't let this kneecap sit out in left field or right field, depending on which knee we're talking about. Make sure that we're giving that quad an excuse to fire and recover and don't be afraid to let them move. So crutches over brace, you know, keep them from falling down, but keep their muscles firing and they'll recover much more quickly. Fantastic. I'd like to thank Dr. Jacqueline Brady for her time and expertise on patellar instability. This continues to be an evolving area of management, and I'm sure we'll see even more changes to our treatment protocols over the next decade. I'd like to thank the St. Louis Children's Hospital Foundation for their support of this podcast. As always, thanks to all of you for continuing to tune in to our new episodes, and we appreciate you spreading the word about our podcast. Follow us on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it these days. Uh, Threads or Instagram at PedSportsPod, and check out all of our episodes at PediatricSportsMedicinePodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at PediatricSportsMedicinePodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.